Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and good morning, and welcome to uh, Gigabit Nation. This is Broadband Talk Radio. I am your host, Craig Settles, and I want to thank everyone in the audience for taking time to be with us today. Our mission, as is always, is to provide information to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get faster, better broadband everywhere it needs to be in America. So now we are at a point where probably most folks are kind of campaign weary of the election that has just uh, just closed. But I think that uh, we're good for one more one more shot of you know post-election, uh, post-mortem kinds of discussions. And particularly because this one this discussion today is going to be not about the the candidates and their flaws and lack of flaws and all that, but the technology that rides underneath um, a lot of the campaigns this year. It's stuff that people don't see, but it is playing a more and more uh, vital role in how the election process works. And I will even go further as to say that in a post-election environment, uh, the the technology will continue to play a role. And I think there's an intersect between many of the conversations that we've had on this show about communities, communities being engaged in uh, activities that are going on in their towns, their cities, and so forth. And and there's a connection between that and, and what role does this technology play in how we get the government that we get. So we have two guests today. One is joining us immediately, and then we have a second guest, and she'll be coming on uh, about uh, 2.15. She got she got tied up in another call. Um, our first guest is uh, Michael Snook, who is from the um, organization uh, Bold Progressives, and uh, he is a CIO for this organization. And the key thing, uh, you know, the takeaway about the organization uh, and and what their tech unit has done is really harness the the internet and and internet technologies in many in its many guises and leverage that as a way to move various campaigns uh, forward and to help support those and to get people actively engaged. Michael, welcome to the show, and uh, and thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you very much, Craig. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's, um, let's talk about uh, the mechanics. What does your organization do, and then what does your IT group do within the uh the, the context of campaigning sure um so boldprogressives.org or uh the progressive change campaign committee is a uh multi-issue group of almost a million members nationwide we build progressive power in in many forms um a lot of the times that means working on campaigns and elections working hand in hand with uh with candidates to run bolder more authentic more effective campaigns um, and then when campaign season is over, we, we look towards building progressive power and energy behind um, uh, economic populist uh, legislation and hill organizing and other things like that. So the the tech department, um, our mandate is fairly broad as well. We're here to just support all the other work that the organization is doing and to really, um, you know, to, to leverage all the tools that we can find or build ourselves um, to make sure that we're able to use technology and the internet to sort of swing above our weight class. Um, mm-hmm. our, our overall budget is 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 not huge, but I think we have a huge impact on the political space because, uh, first of all, because our members are are great and they're committed and um, and they they come through for us every time, but also because we're able to organize in innovative ways, and sometimes technology is the the key piece of that. Mm-hmm. So let's talk let's talk basics. I mean, we in your typical campaign, I mean, you have a couple of core activities, and this is regardless if it's state, if it's uh, national, local, whatever. You have to do a certain amount of education as a campaign. You have to do a certain amount of energizing people uh, to get out and vote. And you've got to track a a whole mountain of data uh, in order to make the first two tasks effective. 
is, is that a fair assessment of you know your your primary objectives of the campaign? Um, yeah, I think it is. I think it is. There, there are a couple other things that that you need to do in order to make that happen. And frankly, the first one is fundraising. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of campaigns are starting. You know, they realized four or eight years ago, in many cases, that the internet could be a really powerful vehicle for raising money. Um, but what people are starting to learn and what we're sort of trying to help them learn more quickly is that it can be a powerful vehicle for organizing in, in any number of ways, not just organizing your fundraising pitches, um, but also cultivating volunteers who will help you um, uh, who will help you sort of carry your campaign forward and, and build to the body of energy that you have to draw on. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, fundraising is, is obviously a really critical thing, and there there, everyone knows about email lists, and everyone who's listening to this show is probably on a few different email lists and got pummeled with emails in the final days of the campaign asking for money. But more <laughs> than that, you know, you can use good technology to figure out, you know, who are the people you should be asking for money and what, what should you be asking them for. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the starting point. The next thing you have to do is you have to staff up your campaign. And one of the things that the Progressive Change Campaign Committee has been doing for a while is we've been collecting uh, just a bank full of resumes of campaign staffers, political professionals, consultants, and even people who just feel like they're talented and they have something that they can offer a campaign. Um, Mm -hmm. And we've been collecting this. It's called our Next Generation of Talent uh, Initiative. And so we go around and help campaigns find excellent progressive staffers who understand, um, you know, who understand new organizing methods, who understand how to use technology and advanced um, techniques in their campaign tools. Um, So that's, I think, another critical thing that often gets overlooked because, as you said earlier in the show, it happens behind the scenes. Uh, The voters who are having their doors knocked on or who are seeing TV ads, they don't know where the staffers came from. They don't know how they were selected. (laughs) And what we're trying to do is make sure that they're selected in a way that prizes competence, uh, and and a, a progressive approach to campaigning. Mm-hmm. So I think that's also a, an important step to get through. And then obviously, like you said, you get into voter education and energizing um, for get-out-the-vote operations, all the tons and tons of data that goes into that. Um, campaigns in the last few years have really made great strides in using data more professionally and more effectively uh, to take the sorts of marketing analytics techniques that have been developed for years and years in the business world and applying those to voter analytics so that every voter in your entire district or state, um, you're able to sort of guess, are they likely to turn out or not? Do they need extra attention for the get out the vote portion of the campaign? And are they likely to support your candidate or not? Do they need extra persuasion or are they someone we should go to to recruit for volunteers? So all of these things are things that are being really reshaped by the use of technology and, and in particular, the Internet in many ways. Mm -hmm. So let's look at, you know, pre-2008, you know, uh, post-2010, okay, because I think in uh, 08 is when people started to realize that, you know, one of the things that the Obama campaign did was, you know, define new uses for internet technology in a campaign. And, you know, we give these things, you know, there were, there were probably wins and failures and so forth and trial and error and all of that. So we'll give it, you know, two years for things to kind of settle out and, and stuff that was tried probably to be discarded for the future. Where are we now? What's different about, you know, some of these core activities that you've described that are the direct result of, you know, Internet access, both people having it, so lots of, you know, voters having it, but also campaigns utilizing it. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the biggest things, I think, has been the introduction of really successful phone-from-home programs. Mm-hmm. Um, it used to be that a phone-from-home program meant that you mailed people a list of voters and they called that list of voters and they mailed it back. For some obvious reasons, um, this introduces about five days' worth of delay in when you cut your lists and when you get data back. Nowadays, um, everyone has their own method for doing this. 
we have our our favorite ways of doing it, and I, I think they're they're really effective. But by now, most campaigns who want to have a, an active phone from home program, there are a variety of tools out there that let them do it. And the way it basically works for in most cases is the volunteer goes and they sign up on a website and they log in to this site when they have time or when their shift is scheduled and they make phone calls and they just enter the information, uh, the results of the phone call right in on their computer screen and the data goes back into the, the campaign's database instantaneously. There's no paper printout. There's no mail involved. Um, this, you know, we used a, a, our own phone from pro, our own phone from home program in 2010 to make a million phone calls on behalf of progressive candidates around the country. Mm-hmm. And in 2012, we improved on those methods again to make over two million phone calls uh, for I think 30 progressive candidates around the country. Mm-hmm. And that was just that was a number that, you know would have been un- unheard of in 2008 because there weren't enough volunteers who were familiar with these systems because there hadn't been previous elections in which that many volunteers had, you know, unlimited access to to the internet and where campaigns knew that enough of their volunteers would have it that they could really start to build programs around it. So this mm-hmm. sort of thing is becoming more and more common and I I think it's great. It means that we're able to leverage the scale of a national organization and still have an impact on an individual, you know, high value race somewhere in the country where our membership is excited about it and where there are real progressive priorities at stake. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, actually I, I used that uh, this time around because in 08, I went to a uh, campaign location and I guess I was uh, so, somewhat blown away because, you know, they hand you these sheets and you can do a lot of stuff with cell phones. So we, eliminated the, the the traditional phone bank as I knew it back when I worked in a couple of campaigns uh, in the 80s, right? I mean, where we're literally phone banks with state-of-the-art technology. And I was so awed by the fact that, well, I can take my cell phone and just, like, show up, and these guys don't have to, you know, get massive amounts of space to rent and phone lines. And then here in, in 2012, you know, literally I'm sitting at home and, and screens pop up with, uh, you know, this is the person to call and this is their nearest voting booth. And, I mean, just this insane amount of data wrapped into a nice, neat little um, interface. What's the net result of this at the end? Um, is it that, uh, in the end, more people vote, uh, more people that you want to vote vote? I mean, if we were to stand up and say, I mean, granted, we're only a week or so out from the end of the, the campaign, but what's been the net result of all this? Yeah, I mean, there are a couple different ways to measure it. Um, the the simplest way to measure it is the way that um, you know campaign analysts and and, and practitioners uh, have have sort of measured out the impact of an, a, a well executed uh, phone call. Um, it's something like four percent of an increase in the likelihood that a voter will will turn out to vote. Um, so take all the people we contacted. Uh, multiplied by 4%, and that's the the easy way of looking at the impact. For me, though, the interesting way of looking at it is in terms of what the campaigns are now able to accomplish that they weren't previously able to accomplish. Mm -hmm. So for a down-ticket race who isn't getting a lot of attention from their state party or whose volunteers are mostly working under the guise of a coordinated campaign who, you know, is usually focused on the top of the ticket – this can mean that that we're able to get their name out to a ton of people that would not, you know, they might have said, "Oh, I'm voting Democratic this year," and so uh, they didn't they didn't think about these down ticket candidates. Well, we're excited about these people, and we think there are important issues at stake, and we want to talk to folks about that. So, for, for in particular for down ticket candidates, where they're just trying to call voters who are already voting Democratic and just let them know, "Hey, don't forget." you know, to vote for me, I'm I'm down ticket, but our race is really important. I think that's a huge, I think that can have a huge impact, much beyond the the sort of 4% that that we can measure in academic studies. And for the, 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 the other thing that it allows campaigns to do is it allows them to put their own volunteers in the office onto door knocking. Door knocking is by far the most effective way to win votes. Having individual people talk to individual people and say, hey, I'm your neighbor from down the block. I'm supporting this candidate because it's really important for my family for these reasons. Um, That's a really powerful thing. But oftentimes the campaigns don't know which doors to knock on 
because they haven't made the phone calls yet. The phone calls are the easy way to sort of gather all this information on this large number of voters, and they are allowed to lean on us to do some of that work for them so that they can focus on knocking on doors, knocking on the most effective doors, and having the most effective conversations. Mm-hmm. Now let's move to a uh, off year, or actually let's move it to the, I guess the the optimum of of off year, uh, off presidential year campaigns, local elections. You know, mayors, city councils, you know, and those you know are that are that are somewhere between the major congressional year races and the presidential year races. Will this technology, in your mind, will this be? Will this trickle down in a, in a word to local campaigns, and, and we'll start to see them using the same kinds of technologies? Yeah, I really hope so. And it's actually, okay. it's definitely one of our one of our goals. So this program that we ran have have run a few times now is called Call Out the Vote. And the way it starts, obviously, is just our volunteers making phone calls on behalf of these campaigns. But one of the beautiful things about it is. Because we're able to do it on the Internet in a way that's very cost-effective, we don't have to do it like a, one of these super PACs or 527s. We don't have to be hiding in the shadows. We're allowed mm-hmm. to communicate with the campaigns. We're allowed to use their lists. We're allowed to use their scripts and return all the data back to them. And so what this means is that a lot of the campaigns afterwards, they say, wow, this was really effective. How did you do it? And we're able to show them and let them get started doing it themselves. And so in a couple of situations in in 2012, we were able to make phone calls for a a state candidate someplace or another where we thought it was really important. One good example is Cecilia Katchik's campaign in New New York for the state Senate uh, was really important for fair elections people and electoral reform people, and it was important to us too. So we made some calls for them, and they said, this system is really great. Can you show us how to use it? So we mm-hmm. did some of the administrative stuff to make sure their you know their lists were loaded and the script was set up and things like that. The tech component we took care of, and we let them handle the organizing. And they did a fantastic job at it. They made tons more phone calls than they would have been able to make had they not realized that this was an option for them. So moving forward, I really would like to do a lot of candidate training and campaign training. Um, I think we're, we have more and more people who are leaving the this electoral cycle with experience using these auto-dialing tools who will then go on to become campaign managers for smaller races all around the country. And so I have high hopes that this this technology will continue to be, you know, more common and more frequently used even by down-ticket candidates. Excellent. Now we're going to dial in and bring in uh, Crystal High, who's our other guest for today, and uh, make sure this Internet technology works on my end, humble though the technology may be. Hello. Crystal, good morning. This is Craig Settles. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you? Doing wonderful, doing wonderful. So, Crystal, I'm bringing you in in the middle of the discussion, and for our audience, Crystal High is editor-in-chief of um, a blog powerhouse called Politic 365, uh, and, and I've known you, Crystal, I guess for a, for a while since broadband stimulus stuff came along. Yeah. And uh, you're in D.C. You're engaged in both... Uh, policy issues, and you write about technology and, and so forth. And I think it's going to be good to have your voice in here to talk about, uh, you know, some of the, the policy issues because we got to transition, or we will transition this conversation to talk about, you know, using the same kind of technology as a way to govern and as also a way to ensure greater uh, participation in the political process by the average uh, citizen. And I'll start by asking you, uh, Crystal. You know, on your side, have you did you see or observe, you know, up close and personal, some of the technologies that were being used by campaigns? I mean, granted, there's there's email, but you know, there's auto calling, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's new this year. Uh, did any of that stuff cross your your radar screen from where you're sitting? Yeah, you know, I think two of the most interesting things um, that were kind of revealed during this campaign cycle around technology was on one hand the use of big data, right? So mm-hmm. how are campaigns uh, using technology, especially mobile devices, to really micro-target both their messaging and their fundraising, more importantly, right? Mm-hmm. I think one of the places where you saw uh, the Obama campaign just, you know, go gangbusters 
um, with their fundraising effort is that they were able to look at, you know, on one hand, the people who had contributed previously, you know, take all the kind of self-supply demographic information um, that we'd use and then really target your message. So, for instance, you know, how do I get a college student, you know, who probably doesn't have much income to donate to my campaign? Well, I, I have Beyonce <laughs> send you a text message or an email, <laughs> you know, saying, hey, can you give me 5 10 or $15? In contrast, you know, how do I get the big executive, you know, who's ha- who has uh, greater resources and greater cachet involved? And so then you have, you know, the first lady, Sending you a note, can you contribute three fifty you know four hundred five hundred to the campaign and so I think that the use of big data was huge um this go round and it was very effective and very um impactful you know if you compare fundraising numbers you know on its face, people thought that Mitt Romney out fundraised President Obama because he had these ginormous uh, contributions coming in from very, very, very wealthy individuals. Well, in contrast, you know, President Obama had a model for crowdsourcing his funding, you know, mm-hmm. crowdsourcing his fundraising efforts. So that was huge, um, I think. And just like you saw a lot of um, targeted messaging around uh, fundraising efforts, I think there were greater efforts to go in and kind of micro-target communities. So looking at uh, census data and figuring out how do we leverage something like, say, a Google Maps <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and figure out where people are located, where are the greatest concentration of people who are likely to vote for President Obama, who are likely to support and understand um, uh, the the message that the Democratic uh, candidates were trying to put forth. And then how do you go in, you know, how do you identify these people, how do you tailor your efforts so that you get them registered and then get them out to vote? So, I mean, I think technology played a major role in just uh, coordinating uh, turnout, registration, and engagement this year. Mm-hmm. So let's ask both of you, switch this around a little bit, Um is one of the net results of this technology being used effectively by campaigns, is the net effect of this uh, a greater engagement by voters in the electoral process? Uh, Crystal, we'll start with you. You just came in, and then uh, I want to also ask the same question to, to Michael. Yeah, I mean, I think we could be at the front end of something pretty amazing, right, in terms of how we use technology in this space. What I would love to see, and this is, I've been talking about it since I've, um, you know, probably, you know, telling blue in the face over the past week or so, but, you know, you think about everything we can do online, right? I do all of my bill pay online, right? If you're one of those people who doesn't do all of your bill pay online, in most instances you have the opportunity to do bill pay, you know, by using your phone, right? Just call in from your home phone or whatever the case may be, verify your account numbers, such, you know, so on and so forth, and then, bam, there you have it. <laughs> you can pay your bills. Now, if we can do online banking, if we can do automated banking and bill pay, and there are all these services, the technology is clearly there um, for us to do pretty, you know, private and security-intensive um, type operations, either online or via some sort of telephone, right? So why can't we do the same thing with voting, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody has a birthday, Everybody has a social security number. If you're a U.S. citizen, you know, forget the voter ID cards, forget, you know, complicated uh, registration or renewal processes, provided you are still alive, (laughs) you know, you can self-verify using, um, you know, your birthday and your social security number. Like, I think there are simpler ways that we could get people more actively engaged um, in in the act of voting, right, which I think is probably the most basic form of civic engagement. And so I do think we're kind of on the front end of where we may be able to go in terms of how we leverage technology to get people involved. Mm-hmm. Michael, what, what's your thoughts? Yeah, I think we're definitely witnessing um, uh, a sort of awakening for activists, I think, um, now, when as we're seeing in sort of this post-Occupy, uh, this post-Arab Spring sort of world, we're seeing that a lot of of people in the, in the world and also in America um, are are definitely willing to sort of stand up and speak out and 
make their voice heard. And in a large way, this is this impacting um, communities that have traditionally been underserved, people of color and young people through text message organizing, through Twitter and all sorts of, of things like that that make it easy to organize yourself. Um, we're seeing activists start to harness this power. We're seeing them start to sort of provide some structure and some guidance for that sort of self-starting energy. And I think that what we're what we're working towards is something that's a little bit closer to a direct democracy than what we've had um, for for at least you know my lifetime so far. Mm-hmm. Something where people are, uh, where individual citizens are more aware both of the need for them to speak up and also for their ability to speak up effectively uh, in a way that that eventually gets heard by people in power. Whether that's because we we organize electorally and we vote them out of office and that's how they hear us, or simply because we have more effective tools for uh, petitioning our legislators or making sure they understand the, the scale of, of the, the number of people out there who, who want to see a change in some particular direction. So I'm, I, I, really like, um, I really like all of the, uh, the work that's been done sort of to take the Occupy energy and um, and help to really direct that towards not only legislators but also corporations. Um, so we're seeing more more corporate accountability as well. So I think we are experiencing a real um, a, a sort of renaissance period for accountability work for regular citizens holding uh, their government and the corporations that are so involved in their lives accountable to to what they say and what they should be doing. Mm-hmm. Now, in a uh, I don't know, call it a well, I don't know if it's a nirvana, but a Blue sky approach for now. Uh, maybe in two years it'll be the reality. But could we see voting places? You know, we typically now go to, a, you know, a school, a gym. We go to some some place and we vote. Could we not basically have all of these voting voting machines replaced by laptops and computers? And and hold that thought for a second. I've got a call. We got a call here for a second. Let me see if I can. Pull them in without losing them here. Good morning. This is Gigabit Nation. Hey, this is Ed Dodds. Ed, uh, good morning to you, dude. Um, hello to everybody, and uh, thanks for the show today. No I worries. Just wanted to, I just wanted to ask about whether or not folks were watching the uh, the Data Transparency Coalition and the the data act that's queued up in the Senate to uh, try to come up with a more transparent federal budget, uh, XML or some other kind of technology to do that. Uh, thanks. I'll listen off air. Oh, no worries. Now, probably for our audience, you might want to sort of bridge the uh, where that would tie in with the without tying with the campaigning aspect using a, using broadband. Or when we get into a discussion about uh, what does broadband mean for changing how we are governed and how we govern? Uh, well, the way I see it is is that um, I, I think your guest mentioned the other day that when uh, we have more knowledge, we can behave better mm-hmm. uh, based on that knowledge. And uh, the ability to have this kind of information that we can uh, review and then pull it into uh, programs on our laptops or, or what have you, to be able to track what expenditures are going on um, at, at a more granular level, the, the same way that we would look at um, corporations if we were stockholders and we were trying to vote on issues at a, at a annual stockholder meeting. Um, th- those kinds of uh, information and, um, and, uh, and uh, context, um, th- this bill would be uh, trying to uh, foster and promote. Does that make sense? Right. I, I, I see where you're coming from with that. So then let me then pick up on that thread and with uh, Michael and Crystal, um, let's shift a bit to the governing process. So you've got technology uh, during the campaigns where you can segment, you can target messages, and then you can distribute messages. Whether we're talking about Twitter, we're talking about Facebook, uh, uh, social networks, works. Um, you've got the, the, the kind of um, technology that allows, you know, phone from home. So I can, in essence, like, for example, maybe in the middle of a uh, congressional back and forth, 
you know, I can weigh in or, or, or the, the Congress can, in essence, encourage people to weigh in from their homes, phoning from home, uh, using the internet technology. Is this a viable, like, dream for the future? Can we start shifting to a governing stance where the things that we are seeing unfolding in these campaigns can be used to engage um, uh, voters in the governing process? Um, and this time I'll start with Mike and then shift to, to Crystal on. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's a really valuable and important question. Um, and I think one of the most fundamental things at work here is the more people have free and open access to the Internet, the more they turn to the Internet for information. Um, the more people feel like it's okay for them not just to, not just to trust what their, their local news person says, although most local news people are great and trustworthy people, but they they start to seek out information. They start to uh, become curious about it. There are people who are voracious readers when you put them in a library. Well, imagine what, what they will do when they have the Internet, right? Um, and so to put this sort of, uh, 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 you know, the, the entire entire budget of the federal government online, I'm not the person who's going to go through and read every line of it, but somebody is. And you know there are some some uh, the, the, this group uh, um, one of my favorite blogs Talking Points Memo back when there were a bunch of Friday afternoon uh, d- d- document dumps that came out of the the Bush administration they would do these projects where people would sign up and they would divvy up the the document dunks in, in, into into chunks of a hundred pages and have different people read their 100 pages, and if there was something really salacious in those 100 pages, they would submit it upstream to the next person who was sort of monitoring this chunk of, of 15 or 20 of these 100-page chunks, right? So they're crowdsourcing this information, and when you put it on the web, when you make it free and open and transparent, you enable people to do this sort of self-organizing and this sort of um, crowdsourcing work. And I, I think that's just a natural fact of... A, people having free and unlimited access to the Internet, and B, um, just having the government put stuff out there and, and let citizens do with it what what they will. Mm-hmm. Crystal, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think provided that we are not um, infringing on anybody's privacy rights and we're not holding in jeopardy any... Um, you know, national security issues. Uh, I think that government transparency in terms of what information gets placed online, um, particularly if you're talking about the budget, I think that, you know, that that will soon become uh, more of an expectation that people have, right? You know, if we're talking about how do you make government uh, government and governance more effective, more efficient, how do you hold people to higher standards of accountability, I absolutely think that, you know, we're going to see the Internet used in ways that, you know, would, would facilitate that. You know, I think the the other side of the equation, though, right, which may kind of prolong <laughs> uh, how long it's going to take before we see some sort of rollout to that extent is that, you know, there is an education process generally that has to happen in this country regarding how we use the Internet, right? So there are lots of things that are online um, that just aren't true, right? And if you're not mm-hmm. there with a verified fact checker, you know, there are people who just believe some of the stupidity and craziness that gets thrown online, right? And so I think we have to also cultivate this culture while at the same time we're saying, yes, we're giving you access to more information so that you can make informed decisions. There also has to be a conversation about, and this is how we make informed decisions, by relying on facts, not just rhetoric and a whole bunch of hyperbolic um, posts that get placed out there by people who are just angry or disenchanted or just, you know, Mm-hmm. want to say whatever. And so I think we're going to see a real interesting shift start to occur um, in our country around the ways in which we use the Internet because I think the expectation, you know, as it should be, is that, you know, the the freedom, the transparency, the openness um, and the engagement opportunities that come with the Internet also come with them a corresponding responsibility to you know, not spread a lot of falsehood, to be responsible, to be, um, 
you know, open to ideas without necessarily being overtly negative or so derogatory to the point that you, you know, undermine whatever credibility might have been in your argument because by the Mm -hmm. time you're done, there's just a whole bunch of craziness being spouted that's not really based (laughs) in fact. And so, I mean, I think we are going to experience that cultural shift. I think it's more a matter of uh, when and how long it takes for us to get there as a country. Mm-hmm. Now, you you bring up a good point about you know the craziness that goes on online, but by the same token, would not is not the uh, one of the values of this technology the ability to sort through to find the truth faster if you're so inclined. And well, I, don't, I don't know that you necessarily can find the truth faster. I mean, the truth is out there, absolutely. But if you consider a situation where, and, and I think this is one of the best things about the Internet, right? You know, everybody has a voice, everybody has an opinion, um, and everybody can create their own platform, right? Everybody is not driven by truth. <laughs> everybody is not driven by facts. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes it's about I have an opinion, whether it's based on actual substantiated facts or not, or whether it's based on an inherent bias that I've developed over time. And so, I mean, I think people have to become more astute um, and say, hey, just because it's on the Internet doesn't mean that this is the end-all, be-all. Yes, I have an access uh, point to worlds of information that were not even possible, you know, 10 years ago. Like, I still remember when Prodigy came out and how exciting, you know, (laughs) like how exciting that was. Ooh, I have Prodigy. We have Internet. We have Dial-Up. You know, because like prior to that, I was still using encyclopedias and books, you know, like me and the Dewey Decimal System were friends. Holy moly. <laughs> Dark ages, lady. <laughs> you know, so, but it's, 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 I think there is, um, there's a disconnect there sometimes in how we use the internet and what we, um, proclaim to be true and just knowing how you find out what's accurate, what's true, and what's not. I don't know that people are always that curious. Some people are, absolutely. Some people will just see something up and take it for face value, you know, because it's on the Internet. It's like, what's that commercial? Um, I think it's like maybe one of the insurance companies. And it's so hilarious because, like, this lady's talking on the street, and she's like, oh, it's on the Internet. You can't lie on the Internet. Everything is true. She's like, oh, here, meet my boyfriend. He's a French model. It's like this dumpy guy with this terrible (laughs) beard who looks absolutely crazy. And he's like, wee wee. You know what I mean? So it's one of those (laughs) concepts where it's like, okay, there's just a a culture that we have to develop um, almost a little bit of sophistication around the Internet. Yes, it's easy to use. Yes, it's open source. Yes, it's open access. Um, But we have to apply some common sense principles as well in terms of discerning, you know, the value of the information that we're receiving online. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, a lot of times you hear people they'll they'll point to a, a comment on a blog left by some anonymous person who has no, you know, no credentials, no they don't have a link to their own website where they have a long body of work that they've produced. They're mm-hmm. leaving some comment and then people will use that to discredit the blog and say, "Oh, well, you know, Daily Coast bloggers said this outrageous thing." Well, look, there, you know, there are crazies all over the place. There right, are crazies right. on the internet. There are crazies off the internet. <laughs> what's, what's helpful about the internet is that you can find communities of people where there is a value system in place and where there are incentive structures in place that value uh, when you cite your assertions, when mm-hmm. you provide links to primary sources, when mm-hmm. you you know when you're open to um, to debate, and when you allow people to engage in discourse. I don't think that 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 everything that is true will 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 come to light through adversarial debate. Sometimes some narrative is needed for, for 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 these kinds of truths to come forward. And what's great about the internet is if someone wants to just produce their own voice and publish it, they can do that as well. Mm-hmm. So I think what's cool about the internet is it allows you it allows us to find places where people value truth and where they value the sorts of behaviors that lead to you know, facts coming to light and, and truth being made more apparent. Um, so so basically, yeah, we have to be responsible citizens, and if we go out and we just sort of believe everything we see, we're going we're, we're, we're gonna to have a bad time. 
Mm-hmm. And I and I think to sum up what you guys are saying, you know, like as a person here in the um, the the chat room, our chat room audience, you know, is is that one of the strengths of broadband is the ability to to rapidly gather and make knowledge available. You know, it's like the massive databases. And um, you know, he he mentioned thing where in Korea they're creating this. Um, uh national resource of knowledge now in their case it's for it's for science programs but but you sort of look at that and go well if i can create massive bodies of science research data which you know that gives you an idea of the sort of the volume then i think it's reasonable to assume that you know here we can assess, we can accumulate you know, a fairly decent chunk of knowledge from a variety of spe- uh, perspectives. We can get it online. We can order it. We can, you know, you know, give it some sort of structure so people can search through it quickly. You know, it changes the dynamic of of educating the the, the public. I would say would be the I think our bottom line here. Um, so let's let's talk another uh, another sort of angle on this thing. Um, and, and Crystal, you and I have talked a lot. So, you know, one of my positions is, you know, I, I advocate for broadband uh, in communities, especially in communities right now that have difficulty accessing it, rural communities, low-income urban communities, and so forth. And and one of the things, uh, like I'm, I did a presentation here in Minnesota where I'm at currently, where I'm listing, you know, well, you want to do, you know, you want to you want to think about community broadband and making this infrastructure available because of economic development, because of healthcare delivery, making healthcare more effective. Should this discussion of why you want to bring broadband to a community include, you know, bringing it to that community to greater engage them in the democratic uh, process? And uh, Crystal, you take this one first. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I think. <laughs> It's interesting, right, because I think, you know, as you talk about what are the things that uh, fuel democracy, right, so I think it's, uh, one, access to information, two, it's a platform that allows you to leverage your collective voice, right, as as citizens, and I think unquestionably the Internet does that, right? Um, Mm -hmm. I think the, you know, when you start getting down to some of the technical uh, logistics of how you get communities fully uh, online, fully engaged, you know, then we come to <laughs> a series of several different um, problems or challenges, right, because there's always going to be the affordability question. Um, there's always going to be the, you know, so what's your access point? Are you relying on wireless? Are you relying on cable, DSL? Are you, you know, one of those people who has access to fiber networks? And then again, what is the attending kind of affordability implication of those access points? And are you limited in some way in your use or not? You know, you may or may not be. So those are some of the questions. And then, you know, from a going forward um, and sustainability picture, it's how do we maintain that access, you know, in an affordable, consumer-friendly kind of way. So, I mean, I absolutely agree with you that you want to see – Broadbanding communities, you know, and I'm I'm not one of those people who feels like, you know, you can only get the job done if you have a a fixed um, broadband line, you know, through your mm-hmm. home and you're using a desktop, right? So I'm, you know, knock on wood, I'm fortunate enough to have a desktop, to have a laptop, to have my iPad, to have my iPhone. I'm a person of privilege when it comes to the technology. Um, that I have access to, but as a matter of preference, I do most of my stuff mobily because I'm always traveling, Mm -hmm. I'm always on the road, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think we have to figure out what is um, a workable equation that looks to the ultimate goal of providing people with uh, a a platform that uh, gives them access to the information and services they need, you know, and whether that's you know, something drawn towards uh, making sure they're civically engaged and more involved in the democratic process, or whether it's as simple as how do I apply for a job, where do I go for health care services, how can I monitor, you know, my child's education, whatever the case may be, right? So making sure that people are tied to the services that matter to them in an affordable way and in a sustainable way. So, I mean, I think those are the different uh, aspects that you're that you have to dig into, but absolutely, you you want people to have access to technology. This is the 21st century. Mm-hmm. 
Michael, what's your thinking? Should we be using political engagement as one more reason to drive broadband into underserved communities? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think there is there there are sort of two levels of um, internet access, two two sort of broad categories of internet access. The first one is where you have enough access that you can go on and you can find the information that you need. This is sort of when you, you know, I have an objective and I can use the internet to solve my objective. Um, the second level is when you have so much internet access that you just spend a lot of time on it, that you sort of default to, you know, Googling around because you're curious. Or I'm sure a lot of us have had the experience of going to Wikipedia to look up one thing and then leaving two hours later having educated ourselves on a, a ton of other things that were completely irrelevant to our initial objective. That's the sort of privilege that we have as people who have permanent broadband connections in our homes that a lot of other people don't have. Um, but the first most basic level of Internet access needs to be I think something along the lines of community centers or public libraries where people can go and get the information they need, that's absolutely essential um, because people can't, I think we're getting to a point now where it needs to be a human right that people have access to the world's store of information. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it all has to get piped into their home for free, but there should be a library or a community center um, nearby everyone in the country that provides them access to this nearly unlimited store of information. Mm -hmm. And the more those can become broadband, like seriously gigabit broadband and, and better, the more they can install high-powered Wi-Fi access points so that everyone within, you know, 0.8 miles. My, my hometown of Charlottesville, Virginia, their, their downtown mall is a pedestrian mall that has full, free, you know, free Wi-Fi for everyone, and that's really nice and good and everything. But the real key is that these Wi-Fi access points are good for 0.8 miles around. So most of the low-income people in the city who live within 0.8 miles of this downtown mall now have free broadband. And it's not very fast, and you can't stream Netflix on it very well. But if you need to look up something for your homework or figure out about a candidate who, who, whose positions you might be unclear on, you know, you have what you need to get access to it in your homes. And so I think that's a really good place to start is with public spaces, community centers, and public libraries, and then sort of building out um, uh, larger scale wireless access from there. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk, uh, we've got about 12 minutes or so left in the show, let's talk about the policy side of this for a minute. I, and we'll start with Crystal because, you know, you're, you're in D.C. and you know and do policy stuff. Um, are there policies that we could be shaping around this argument that, you know, broadband, you know, high-speed Internet is a is a civic value, it, 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 or at least has potential to be a civic value, and that we should be developing policy to encourage that. Am I coming from total left field, or is there a policy avenue that you can see advocating that would help us get to this end point that you guys are describing? Well, so I think, you know, we're at a very interesting place when it comes to kind of technology and telecom policy in this country, right? So you step back a few years and look at the National Broadband Plan and the goals that were uh, laid out around connecting America, right, making sure that those 100 million Americans that are currently offline can get online. So, I mean, that that already kind of starts to frame the conversation about broadband being a priority because I don't think that at this point anybody questions um, the role and importance of broadband and the Internet in this country, especially when we're talking about, you know, how do we move towards being globally competitive uh, in the 21st century, right? I think where we find ourselves now is at a bit of a... I won't call it a reckoning point, but, I mean, there's definitely conversations around, so where do we go from here, right? You look mm -hmm. at the evolution cycle of technology, which has a half-life of, I kid you not, probably about five minutes, right? So it's like every every few minutes, something new is coming out. There's some new innovation at the edge. You know, network operators are trying to come up with um, – you know, innovative ways to kind of diversify their brand and their products. At the same time, you have people who were traditional players and say, like, you know, 
the edge only, the Internet space like Google, now taking a foray into um, network land, right? They just did their, well, not just, but earlier this year, did their fiber optic uh, rollout to a part of Kansas City, right? So, I mean, you're seeing the technology and, and telecom space converge at, a, at an alarming rate, which I think is exciting. Um, but at the same time, you know, the question that it's raising inside the Beltway is, you know, from a policy standpoint, what do we do um, with, say, our 1996 Telecom Act? Is it mm-hmm. time to rewrite that? And that's really where you're hearing most of the chatter right now because I think, again, there's a clear understanding and appreciation of the value um, that this stuff brings. And now the question is, as a next step, how do we as a country handle technological change in a uh, fair and as, you know, kind of technologically neutral uh, manner possible, right, because of convergence. You're seeing a lot going on uh, on the Hill around kind of privacy, data transfers, cybersecurity, um, piracy is a big issue. So I think we're we're at a point now just trying to figure out, you know, what happens. How do we deal with this brave new world? So, I mean, it's not just one policy that's coming down the pike, mm-hmm. but certainly there is a lot of discussion around the types of uh, policy that has to be developed to better address where we are right now with the Internet landscape. Mm-hmm. Michael, what are your thoughts? What kinds of policies do you think or policy stances do you think maybe we should be taking? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm a firm believer that um, as a nation, um, we need to move towards universal broadband build-out for just everyone in the country. Um, you know, h- How we get there, I understand there are a lot of, of challenges, and, and Crystal has, has done a pretty good job at out, outlining the landscape there. Mm-hmm. One of the things that is of concern to me is is actually rural broadband, um, because I feel like urban broadband will will kind of be easier to solve. There are cities who are taking it upon themselves to just decide we're just going to set up Wi-Fi towers that'll power everyone, you know, everyone around. Um, and and those sorts of things those are surmountable. Um, rural broadband is tough because even if you can get the big data movers uh, on board, there's still this problem of the last mile. How do you get the data from, you know, the very last uh, uh, connection center into the person's home? Do you actually have to lay down that mile of fiber optic cable? Do you actually have to lay down a mile of new new wiring? Or is there another way that, that we can approach these things? And I think that we may be coming to a point where if we decide as a country that universal broadband build-out is a priority for us, for our global competitiveness, and frankly, as a, as almost like a, a human rights issue moving forward. Um, if we set that as a priority and we say, how are we going to accomplish it? I think we will probably find that f- when it comes to dealing with the last mile of rural broadband, we'll either have to rely on private companies like Google, who just decide they're going to build it sort of out of the goodness of their own hearts a little bit, Hmm. Um, or we have to decide actually what we're going to do is we're just going to set up Wi-Fi towers that get people the last mile. And in that case, the easiest way to do it, I think, is going to be to provide it for free for everyone. Mm-hmm. So we may be at a place where if we wait, if we sit, if we sit back and let corporations do it for us, we'll end up with you know a remarkably sticky and overly monopolistic um, marketplace for broadband. Or if the government just, just decides we want to do it, we'll probably find it's a lot more cost-effective to just have a, a universal broadband system that covers everyone in the country. Mm-hmm. And that would be really exciting. It's not something I think we would do in the next two or five years, but it would be a huge step forward for the country. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, sort of taking up the idea, you know, I, I mentioned earlier in the broadcast about, you know, where we go to vote you know, could not you know, be envisioned that one day we would go there and we would have a computer and we would get past so many issues because we would eliminate the machine. We just have the direct connection. You know, here's your ballot. It goes in. Your vote goes in. And it gets stored in some place that's, you know, unassailable and off we go. And it's quick and it's easy. And 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 someone made uh, in, in, the, in the chat room audience actually came up with two ideas. I think one was a joke. One was serious. 
the joking idea was, well, maybe we should turn, you know, Walmart into a giant wireless ISP, uh, you know, because they're, they're everywhere. Um, but maybe a more serious uh, idea that was brought up is that, you know, they say, well, you know, churches are, are tax-exempt and so forth and so on. So why don't all the, 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 the churches as a, you know, public good in, in return for not paying us billions of dollars in taxes because they're tax-exempt, well, why not have them turn into, you know, wireless towers, wireless relay stations, in essence, become part of the infrastructure because they are part of the public, number one, but because, you know, it's a very clear, you know, they are they are a tax-advantaged organization, and not just them alone, because then the next person in the chat room say, well, you know, add post offices to that and, you know, other government or non profit organizations, but the idea is that, you know, we give organizations a tax break and ultimately it's supposed to help us, so not why not as a policy, if you will, say, look, you know, contribute to this grand idea of a national infrastructure, broadband infrastructure, and since we have four minutes left, why don't each of you take like a minute, minute and a half to, to, to address that thought? Sorry, yeah, sure, so... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. So you know what I think is really interesting about um, that concept is that I love it when people come up with creative ideas to do something, you know, kind of different and innovative, and yet still include where our current structures are. Because one thing that I've personally been thinking um, a lot about in terms of, you know, how we can create some better community development. Uh, opportunities without creating an additional um, financial or administrative burden on the federal government is, you know, what can we do around tax policy because that's clearly something that's about to be rewritten or needs to be rewritten, right, our tax code Mm -hmm. and how we address that. But, you know, what can we do around tax policy to incentivize greater community engagement, right? So if you're talking about something you do from a corporation, you know, if if said corporation, whether it's a Walmart, a Google, a whoever, right, you know, commits to, um, you know, pledge, let's say, 1% of their their profit, you know, after expenses are dealt with, 1% of their profit to some sort of, a national community redevelopment fund, right? And you can say whether you're dealing with infrastructure or education or healthcare, whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you get a corresponding tax break, you know, for that, right? Because we, we think about what are the things that drive America, right? We want to be able to do good and do well. We want a situation where people can advance um, their own personal interests, but that we also want a situation where even the quote-unquote least among us can still survive, can still thrive, right? They're not Mm -hmm. suffering and struggling. So if you have a situation where you could do something like that, you know, why can't you then offer some sort of incentive um, to churches, to community centers, to, you know, frankly, you think about even certain places that, you know, have maybe liquor stores (laughs) or gas stations on every corner, right? How do you leverage current infrastructure um, that's already in communities that are desperately in need of um, technological assistance, right, to help speed uh, the, the rate at which they'll be able to kind of in- improve the area. How do you create a, a public and private partnership? How do you create a situation in which we really are all in in this country? You know, I think over the past uh, two years in particular, we've gone down this very silly route of, you know, pointing the fingers at this so-called class warfare argument, right? And I think that's the wrong conversation to be having. It's not, you know, who needs to do less. It's how can we all do more, right? right? So it's like within your means, whatever you have, if the resource that you have is not capital, 
you know, you don't have a financial resource, what can you do by way of community service to help improve this country? How can you give back? You know, so that's Mm -hmm. kind of the the kind of thought um, that I love to hear. And so whoever... Um, brilliant member of your audience came up with with that idea. I think it's great, and that's actually the kind of conversation that I would love to hear going on more inside the Beltway. You know, and it's a perfect example of how you use technology to get that message up here. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have to cut. Sorry to mean to cut you off, Michael, but um, we're going to run out of time here in about 15 seconds. That's fine. I was just going to agree with everything Crystal said. I'll be doing other articles, and maybe get you guys back here again for another show um, both of you have added a lot of really valuable information to the discussion. Uh, I thank you for being here. We got 10 seconds, so you know, have a great day. Thanks for your participation. Thank you for our audience for being here. Uh, we'll we'll do this again. We'll do this again. Have a great day. Thank Thanks you so much, guys. Craig.